0: Welcome back to
1: Varied Motives.
0: We're glad you're joining us for another week, or if it's your first time, thanks for checking us out.
1: For sure. We love new listeners, and we really appreciate our long-time ones as well.
0: You know the worst thing about summer? Is that it goes by so fast. It absolutely does.
1: We are in August
0: already. How did this happen? I have no idea. I have not accomplished half the things that I wanted to do.
1: Me neither. I think I need to start scheduling in some fun for the second half of summer. <laughs> Because before we know it, it's gone. And not all of us live in a sunshine state where you get sunshine all the time.
0: No, some of us live in places where we get like four or five months of nice weather. If we're lucky. Yeah.
1: But our Canadian summer this year has been an especially nice one. We only get a few months each year of nice weather, so I chose today's case because it involves one of Canada's favorite summer pastimes. This is something that most of the people in mine and Melissa's families enjoy doing and have even done together. Any guesses?
0: Oh, it's our annual hiking trip. (laughs)
1: Yes, hiking! (laughs) We are fortunate to live by mountains and get to enjoy their incredible beauty throughout the year, but especially during the summer months. My children would always choose camping in the mountains over camping at
0: a beach. Uh, I think my kids could go either way. Yeah. It's not that they don't like the beach, but we
1: do beach days and then camp and hike in the mountains. Most people like to go hiking to get away from the hustle and bustle and stresses of everyday life. It's a time that you can connect with nature and invite some peace into your life. Breathe in some delicious negative ions and feel rejuvenated afterward.
0: And last year we jumped in a glacier lake. And it was revitalizing. <laughs> <laughs> That's one word for it. If you've never done that,
1: you almost feel your heart skip a beat, like a literal skipping of a beat.
0: <laughs> oh, I thought I was going to drown because I forgot how to swim. Yeah. It was so cold. It's shocking. But hiking in the
1: mountains truly is an experience like no other. It is. Hopefully most of our listeners have been able to do that at some point in time.
0: Or if you haven't, it's definitely something to put on your bucket list.
1: For sure. For sure. And come to Canada. We have beautiful mountains. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, today's murderer chose one of the most serene places that you can go to unleash complete horror onto his unsuspecting victims, earning himself the name the National Forest Serial Killer.
0: There are lots of places to hide bodies out there, too.
1: (laughs) I know. I told (laughs) one of my kids that I was going to do this case, and they're like, no, don't ruin hiking for everybody.
0: But sorry. (laughs) When Christy and I go for a walk in the woods, we're like, and that would be a good spot. And that would be a good spot.
1: (laughs) And heaven forbid we see a garbage bag out in the woods because we're (laughs) certain there's a body in there. (laughs) Is it true? (laughs) One of the unusual things about this killer is that he was in his early 60s when he was arrested for his brutal crimes. Most serial killers start in their 20s. And so he is suspected of murdering many more people than he actually is charged with. Which is a terrifying thought. They even have specific victims who they think he is responsible for.
0: So he only confesses to the ones that they can link him to.
1: Right. He only gets charged for four. Oh, okay. But they believe he is responsible for many more.
0: And he just wouldn't cop to them afterwards. Right. Which is unusual for a serial killer, isn't it?
1: Well, as you'll find, he only cops to the ones when it's going to benefit him.
0: Oh. Mm-hmm. He's a conniving dirtbag.
1: Yep. Selfish to the core. Oh. Gary Michael Hilton was born on November 26, 1946, in Atlanta, Georgia, to a woman named Cleo Reynolds. She would later go by the last names Hilton and Debaje. Cleo was born on June 6, 1925, so she was 21 years old when Gary was born. And I know I probably said Debaje wrong. It's a name from Argentina, and I just couldn't find the right pronunciation for it. Almost everywhere I looked, I had a hard time finding information about Gary's childhood, That was until I found a compilation of video, written, and audio documents concerning Gary's case. Jackpot. Totally. I have that actually in here, (laughs) but this was a research jackpot. I was able to listen to a a two-and-a-half-hour interview that police had with Cleo about her son after he was arrested for the Grizzly murders. The interview took place on February 1st, 2008, inside her home. Her brother was with her for the majority of the interview. She has since passed away but was 82 years old at the time of the interview. There are reports that Gary and his mom Cleo had a strained relationship, but it was a unique experience to hear her talk about her son. I think we sometimes forget that these monsters, who we talk about, were once someone's little boy or girl. So a lot of my information about his childhood is from his own mother to the best of her recollection. They had been estranged for the decade prior to Gary's arrest because of an incident when Cleo would not pay Gary's bail So the information she gave was really more about his life growing up, not the time of the murders.
0: And if he can't get it firsthand from the murder, then who better than to give you his history than his own mother? Yeah, it
1: was really interesting and I hadn't found this information anywhere else. And she does admit to dysfunction in her home, so I feel like the things that she said were truthful.
0: Mm, She she didn't try to rose color glasses it.
1: No, there was no candy coating. Gary's birth father... William Esko Hilton was in the military medical corps stationed in Atlanta but he only lived with them for three months. Gary grew up not knowing his biological father at all. William went overseas to England with the military and when he came home he had another wife.
0: Which is so sad but actually happened quite a bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah but he was married when he left to Cleo and then Mm -hmm. came home with another wife. He would visit on weekends for a while, but never paid child support, and eventually he just took off altogether, so totally a deadbeat dad. Dirtbag dad. When Cleo had him investigated, they discovered that he had been married to a different woman before he married Cleo. What? They couldn't find any divorce records between William and his first wife, so Cleo didn't know if their marriage was even legal.
0: He was married to three women at the same time? Yep. Oh, man. From what they
1: could tell. She decided to still file for a divorce instead of just an annulment, just in case he did obtain a divorce from his first wife and their marriage together was legal.
0: So she was trying to do things the proper way.
1: Yes. So Cleo was, was no longer one of his wives, if it was legal or not. So his dad was a polygamist. Oh, man. <laughs> not a great start. Cleo said that Gary didn't complain much as a child. He was quiet and a bit of a homebody but could still make friends and loved to play cops and robbers.
0: Was he the bad guy or the good guy? I don't
1: know. (laughs) I was just going to say normally that wouldn't raise a red flag, but looking back now, I'm like, oh, that's a little ironic that he liked to play cops and robbers. (laughs) My guess is he was the robber. He was extremely intelligent and would finish his schoolwork early and then sometimes get into trouble for making the other kids laugh while they tried to finish their own work. Gary was not a very affectionate child growing up, but was close to his mom as a young boy. Up until a certain point in time, he would continue to have contact with his mom and send her pictures of him and his dog in all the beautiful spots that he would go hiking. When I thought about it, some of those pictures could have been from the places he killed people, but because his supposed victims are not proven, we can't say for sure. It's just a creepy thought.
0: Oh, that is creepy. hmm
1: Because he loved hiking. He was an avid hiker and would send his mom these pictures. Like in the interview, she's showing them the pictures of him and his dog in all these different mountain scenes.
0: Well, and how many of those pictures do we have ourselves, right? That's what everybody does is you hike to the summit and then you take a picture. Absolutely. In fact, the hiking picture that I posted
1: on our social medias was from one of the trails where one of the murders happened. And it's a beautiful trail. You would have no idea. And how many people have walked down that trail since not knowing what
0: occurred there? Isn't that a creepy thought? Mm -hmm. How many trails have we been on that we've actually passed a murder scene or something like that?
1: Hopefully none, but there could be. (sighs) When Gary was around eight years old, Cleo's job at a Venetian blind company transferred her to Tampa, Florida. She said she was happy to go because at that time, she didn't appreciate all the pity her neighbors gave her for having a husband who ran off on her and left her to raise a child alone. Gary went to daycare for a while after school until his mom got off work, but there was one incident when Gary locked himself in the bathroom at the daycare and just cried for an entire hour. Cleo said she never took him back. Instead, she enrolled him in the local boys club, which he loved. Gary was part of the rifle club at the boys club and won a shooting award. It seems innocent enough, but is creepy when you know what he eventually becomes. Oh... And I don't know what incident happened at the daycare, but something happened to make him lock himself in that bathroom and just cry.
0: Yeah, that's odd. Mhm.
1: When Gary was 9, Cleo married a man from Argentina named Nilo Debage. He raced horses professionally. Nilo was very strict and expected perfection out of Gary. Oh no. Cleo felt like Nilo was jealous of Gary and the attention that Cleo gave to him. Gary would get up early before school and help Nilo with the horses. Nilo never physically abused Gary, but Cleo claims that he definitely mentally abused Gary. When Gary turned 10, Nilo wanted Gary to get a job. He was like, hey, you're 10 in my country. You go out and help support the family. However, Cleo rightfully made him stay in school. When Nilo would yell at Gary, Gary would just stand there silently and take it. He always did what Nilo told him to
0: do. Is that going to create a whole bunch of pent up rage?
1: Absolutely, it does. Because of the horse racing, the newly formed family would have to travel across the states, living in almost every state in the Union. They would only stay in one place for a few months at a time, making it hard for Gary to form lasting friendships. Cleo claims that Gary enjoyed traveling. He liked every place they went to except for Toledo.
0: Oh, what was wrong with Toledo?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I've never been to Toledo, but even the officer that was interviewing her, he's like, well, can you blame him for not liking Toledo? So I'm sorry if we have any listeners in Toledo. (laughs) We're not sure why.
0: Now I want to go to Toledo. Just to see, right?
1: It's a neat name. Toledo is a fun name to say.
0: (laughs) But he probably looked at it. If he's an adventurer and an outdoors person, every new place that you move to would have new places to explore.
1: Yeah, she said he really wasn't bothered with traveling around. Mm -hmm. He really enjoyed it.
0: And it doesn't sound like he forms attachments. Very easily, other than his mother, right? If he's not making friends and he's moving around so much, it wouldn't really bother him. Yeah,
1: you're likely right. Despite switching schools each time that they moved, Gary excelled in school. One school even wanted to move him up three grades.
0: Three grades? Yeah.
1: Later, I read that he actually was of genius IQ. So very intelligent.
0: What is it with all the geniuses that turn out to be murderers? I know, it's such a waste. Such a waste of their potential. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Cleo declined him moving up the three grades because she was worried that the next school he went to might move him back down to the grade he was supposed to be in, and it would just cause confusion. The family finally stopped moving around when Gary was in grade six. They settled in Hilea, Florida, not too far from Miami. Gary wasn't able to play many school sports because of an injury to his right hand. When he was nine, he fell out of a tree and broke it quite badly. He was left-handed, so he could still do things okay, but it made sports challenging for him. Hmm. As a child, Gary sustained a pretty horrific injury. In one of their new apartments, there was a bed bolted to the floor. The last renters had some type of sickness, so Cleo didn't want any of them to sleep on that bed. She needed help getting the bolts undone from under the bed. It was a Murphy-style bed, and somehow Gary got caught up in it. Oh, no. Tearing off a large part of his scalp. (gasps) It took over 200 stitches to repair, and on the way to the hospital, Gary kept asking his mom if she could see his brain.
0: Oh no, but he still maintained his genius like you, so it couldn't have affected him that much.
1: Not intellectually, but maybe personality. When Gary would have been around 11 or 12, he witnessed his mom having a miscarriage. Nilo was at the horse track, so Gary had to call the doctor to have him send an ambulance. He was left home alone when the ambulance took his mom away. Cleo said he was scared to death. He remained an only child and never went on to have any children of his own.
0: Oh, that would be horrific. Mm -hmm.
1: It was pretty scary for him.
0: All the blood and then all of a sudden your mom just disappears and you're left there alone. You don't know what's happening. Yeah. Oh,
1: it's not cell phone days where you could text what's happening, mom. Are you okay?" No. And
0: everybody else would have rushed to the hospital. Nobody else would have came to get him to tell him what was going on.
1: Yeah. No, Nilo would have gone to the hospital and he had nobody else around because they moved around. He didn't have lots of friends or family close by.
0: You can see how that would be traumatizing.
1: For sure. So there's just these few incidents of things that happened in his childhood. As Gary got older, him and Nilo would increasingly butt heads about everything. The fighting between them caused Cleo to leave her husband a total of
0: seven times. Oh, so it wasn't just like Gary was being a turd.
1: No, Nilo was being mentally abusive. Yeah. He expected such perfection out of Gary and wanted control over him that it would have caused problems in their marriage. But she kept going back. Mm -hmm. Nilo would talk her into coming back he'd say okay I'll go to counseling but then he would only go to one session and then just go back to his old ways again he never hit either of them but he would scream and break things or he would often whack a belt on the wall or
0: doorframe right in front of them wherever they were standing just to be totally intimidating yep
1: and intimidation is still abuse
0: yep Mm -hmm. the threat of violence can have the same effect
1: Yep, for sure At age 14, Gary would get his revenge on Nilo. His mom had a really hard time talking about what transpired during this part of the interview. She actually had her brother go get the mail while she talked about it.
0: Oh, because she didn't want him to know what had happened?
1: She just had never really talked freely about it to anybody.
0: So is this not part of the charges against him? No, he never gets charged with this. Okay. Yeah.
1: Let me explain. Cleo and Nilo were separated at the time and Nilo would come to their apartment every single night begging Cleo to take him back. Gary had enough. He borrowed a gun from a friend and waited for Nilo to show up. When Nilo did show up, Gary pointed the gun at him and told him to leave them alone, that his mom didn't want him, and if he didn't leave, he was going to call the police. Nilo yelled at him to go ahead and call the police. He was the one who did the intimidating, so he did not take this tactic well from Gary. Mm. Gary then threatened to shoot Nilo if he didn't leave. Nilo kept yelling at him to go ahead, go ahead and shoot. Nilo then grabbed a mattress and held it up in front of himself and screamed at Gary that he dared him to shoot him.
0: Oh, no. And
1: I was like, testosterone, please. Yeah. Any guesses what happened?
0: Yeah, he shot him through yeah. the mattress.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Gary took Nilo up on his dare and shot him in the lower stomach area. He survived the shooting and never pressed formal charges.
0: Hmm. I can't say that that's actually a precursor of what he's going to become later because he did taunt him. And if Gary was feeling that he abused his mom, the only person that he had had a relationship with or an attachment to, you can see how he would want to protect her. And then the guy's taunting him. I don't know. It was
1: premeditated. He borrowed the gun from his friend. Nilo wasn't there getting violent or doing anything. He was just trying to get her to come back to him. So Gary had planned this. And if you're going to borrow the gun and you're threatening to shoot someone, I think he had already decided, I'm just going to shoot Nilo and then we won't have to worry about him anymore. Mm, That's true. And this also goes back to serial killers having weird relationships with their moms, kind of a dysfunctional relationship
0: with them. Being protective of your mom isn't dysfunctional though.
1: No, it's not. But it did sound like their relationship was up and down and maybe him feeling like he has to protect her and that kind of stuff. It sounded like she had some disadvantages in life and was just trying to do her best.
0: As most moms are.
1: Yep. Gary was taken into police custody. He spent some time in juvie as well as a mental hospital. But afterwards, the counselor told Cleo that her duty was first and foremost to her husband, not to her son. No. They did. That's what they counseled her. You need to be with your husband and stand up for him and behind him, not your son.
0: What counselor would say that? I don't know. It would have been the time, so, right? But was it a counselor for her or was it a counselor for her son? Like her son's counselor is saying, yes, we understand that you're his only attachment point, but please go be with somebody else and leave him.
1: I heard her say they told me that my duty was to my husband.
0: That sounds very bizarre to me. It didn't to me for the times. Mm, it's true. Okay, considering the times, I can see how that would be. It's bizarre to us
1: now. Yeah. But I mean, even school textbooks had chapters in there about how women were supposed to take care of their husbands.
0: Yes. Have you ever seen those? Yes. We have one at work. There tells you the correct temperature to have their drink ready at for when they get home. Yeah. And to
1: get the kids out of eyesight and put on some blush and fix yourself up. And don't worry him about your silly problems throughout the day.
0: And douche with Lysol.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember that conversation. Yeah, so he was born in 1946 and he was 14. So it'd been like 1960. Yeah,
0: it makes sense then for the time. But I don't think you would have a counselor say that nowadays.
1: I would hope not. And if you do, you need a new counselor. Yeah. So after juvie, Gary stayed with a friend's family until Nilo left for good and Gary could return home. No way. Yep. so he wasn't even allowed to return home. In some records, it says that he was in foster care, but it was actually a friend's parents that let him come live with them for a while.
0: Knowing how valuable that attachment relationship is, that would have been devastating. Totally.
1: Because he was trying to protect his mom and then she's going to live with Nilo and I have to go live with a friend.
0: Yeah, that is bizarre.
1: Yeah. It would feel like a bit of betrayal probably
0: for Gary. Now we know because we understand that attachment relationship, you try to protect that relationship, whether it was like even his mom that was doing the abusing, you would still protect that relationship because it's so fundamental in how they view themselves. It's just so fundamental to who they are. And so knowing that they did that to him, oh, man.
1: Yeah, it would have been a hard pill to swallow for Gary. Mm -hmm. And because they moved around, like he didn't have many friends. Like his main attachment was to his mom.
0: Yeah. That primary caregiver is huge. Mm -hmm. It has me wondering if this was kind of the flip switch for him. Could have been. Had he been okay up until now? And then all of a sudden you mess with that relationship.
1: And even the trauma. Of shooting somebody Mm -hmm. at the age of 14. There would have been blood, commotion, police, ambulance. Yeah, it would have been a traumatic experience.
0: There's a whole lot going on with this little boy Mm -hmm. at 14. This is at 14, yes. Doesn't justify what he becomes later on, but for this 14-year-old, there's a lot going on for him. For sure.
1: While living in his friend's house, Gary learned to play the drums and developed a passion for it. Gary actually has a lot of talents like he even like gets his pilot license he gets his chauffeur license he's a go-getter hey he is a go-getter
0: yeah it is amazing to me how that just personality type of I'm gonna try it and we'll see how it goes right it can take you so far yeah and I think
1: he's just naturally just good at things mm-hmm. he's super smart and bodily able yeah to excel in a lot of ways so unfortunate mm-hmm With only one month before graduating high school, Gary dropped out to play the drums full-time at a nightclub.
0: No, we're just talking about all his potential and then he drops out of high school. But don't (laughs) worry, it'll come full
1: circle. However, when they found out that he was a teenager, they fired him. Okay. Just before turning 17, Gary joined the army. He underwent paratrooper training to begin with. His group consisted of 500 trainees and Gary was in the top 10 of his group. impressive yeah so again just excelling he completed his GED during the time and continued to play the drums while in the army so he did graduate Gary became a green beret and was stationed in Germany even when Gary was eventually arrested at the age of 61 he was able to maintain great physical shape so he must have kept up some of his training habits which included push-ups and long distance running
0: and all the hiking Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I can attest that some hikes, you got to use a lot of strength to get up that dang hill. On the hikes where Christy's husband takes us. (laughs) Yup. He's
1: literally stood behind me before and helped push me up as we go. Switchbacks are okay, but when it's just straight elevation, that's challenging. In 1967, at the age of 21, Gary was honorably discharged from the army. He had begun to hear voices and experienced a schizophrenic breakdown of sorts. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was medicated for it until his discharge. Hmm. Gary brought home something unexpected with him from Germany. Gary had married a woman named Ursula. Sadly, this would not be his one and only marriage. Gary went through what you could describe as a tumultuous time during the 70s and 80s. He would go through many jobs, get in trouble with the law, and experience multiple failed marriages. He divorced Ursula, And was married to Sue from 1969 to 1971. To Dina from August of 1977 to May of 1978. Oh, that didn't last very long. Well, the next one's even shorter. And to Betty Sue from March to October of 1979.
0: Why even bother getting married then?
1: I don't know. Despite all of these marriages, Gary was able to maintain a friendship throughout the years with a woman named Sean.
0: So was that a good friend of his?
1: It didn't sound like it was a bad friendship or a toxic thing. Okay. Just they had stayed friends off and on throughout the years, which was unique for Gary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was the only long-term friend that I could find that Gary had.
0: And was this one of the times when he was kind of off again with his mom? Or was he maintaining a relationship with his mom during this time too? I'm wondering if she's a replacement for his mom.
1: His mom had met Sean throughout the years. So they were friends before he was on the outs with his mom. Okay, Gary was charged with things like drinking under the influence, Arson, theft, solicitation, lots of that, (laughs) drug possession, and carrying a weapon without a license. By 1995, if I did my math right, he had racked up 15 years of probation. And I decided to not go into detail with all of these previous charges, but it is clear that Gary was starting to spiral out of control and only receiving slaps on the wrist.
0: 15 years of probation? Mm-hmm. I thought the whole thing was if you broke probation, you went back to jail. You didn't just get more probation time.
1: No, he did because he would get like five years of probation for this. And then
0: he would do something against yeah. his probation.
1: Right. Ugh. So totally just slipping through the cracks of the justice system here.
0: Which is so unfortunate when you see that happen because they could have prevented people's murders. For sure.
1: And this isn't the only time that that happens where he could have been stopped.
0: It's so sad when that happens. And it seems to happen a
1: lot. Mm hmm. Okay, you won't believe this next part. Gary did something in 1995 that totally blew my mind.
0: Any guesses? Does he join medical school? Nope. Oh.
1: <laughs> he helped produce an actual movie. What? It's a real movie. It's in like the international movie database. I looked it up.
0: Where does that come out of his history at any point? I know. This just blew
1: my mind. It was just so crazy. And then what I'm going to tell you about it blows my mind even more. The movie is called Deadly Run. Oh no. And Gary is credited for coming up with the concept of the movie. I'm going to read part of the movie description and tell me if this sounds familiar. So, this is part of the description. He has a cabin on a rural tract 200 miles to the north, to where he often flies his airplane carrying abducted, minimally attached females who he there releases as game and fatally hunts.
0: Bob the Butcher Baker. Yes!
1: This is literally what Robert Hansen, or as we refer to him in our episode about him, Bob the Butcher Baker did. It just blew my mind. Was he fanboying on him? Maybe, because Robert, or Bob the Butcher Baker, would have been arrested more than a decade prior to this. So it makes me wonder if Gary was studying serial killers, which sometimes they do.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Or was he already a serial killer himself and had done these things? He could have. Because you said he got his pilot's license, right? He did. Oh.
1: Yeah. At the time that he was in the army, he got his pilot's license. So he could have done this as well.
0: Crazy. Mm -hmm. I know. It blew my mind. I was like, what? Nancy Brophy taught us you write what you know. That's true. And
1: that's even creepier if he had already started killing and then helped them write this movie.
0: Look, guys, I know how to make it more realistic. Right. What if we did this and this? Yeah. No, she would scream more like this. Ooh, that is a creepy thought. (laughs) It
1: is. (laughs) The movie only got a 3.3 out of 10 rating. And if you click on Gary's name on the IMDb website, it brings you to Gary's mugshot. So he's actually listed on there as one of the creators. You click on his name and his mugshot is there. No way. Yeah. And I just think how crazy that a serial killer was able to help create a movie
0: About a serial killer. That's too ironic not to believe that he was not already murdering people.
1: Yeah, could have been. But then this would mean he was murdering over two decades before his known murders. And if he started in his 20s, this could have been two decades after he began murdering.
0: Because that's when most serial killers start.
1: Yes. Wow. Crazy. I just had to put that in there because I was like, what? No. And then I look up the movie and there's his picture on the website. That is insane. And his mugshot to boot. But again, he's a multi-talented guy. (laughs) Why am I not surprised that he helped create a movie? It's just too bad he's such a dirtbag. In 1997, Gary met a man named John Tabor. John hired Gary to work at his construction company, Insulated Wall Systems, as a telemarketer. John gave him a place to live, and Gary managed to work there for 10 years, until September of 2007.
0: So that screams to me that if you are successful at telemarketing, then you must be a pretty charismatic guy, too. Oh, for sure. Definitely friendly. And he did it really well. John later said
1: in a deposition that Gary's behavior became strange during the last year that he was employed at his company. One day, Gary even showed him inside his mouth where he had extracted his own tooth. Why is he
0: pulling out his own teeth?
1: I assume he had a toothache or an infected tooth and he just yanked that baby out on his own.
0: No dental insurance.
1: Gary told John that he wasn't on good terms with his mother and didn't have a very good childhood. He also told John he had a list of people he wanted to kill before killing himself. Ooh, Gary had a dog named Ranger, who he was very attached to. Ranger went everywhere with him. John said that Gary would get into confrontations with other dog owners at parks if their dog approached his. So again, very protective like he was of his mom. And he wouldn't even let his dog have friends? No. He would carry around BB and pellet guns to protect his dog. Gary loved his dog so much that at one point in his life, he lived in a shed because his landlord wouldn't allow his dog to live there. Gary became depressed after his dog died. Oh no. He told John that he buried him in the mountains.
0: You said he used to hike with his dog, right?
1: All the time. He does get another dog, but the death of this dog really did affect him.
0: Well, it seems like he's formed an attachment to it. Mm-hmm.
1: As Gary spiraled, he decided to try and extort money out of John. He demanded that he give him $2,500 or else he would kill him. What? Mm-hmm. Out of nowhere. Like this last year, he was spiraling. And then all of a sudden, he's like, you owe me $2,500. If you don't write me a check, I'm going to kill you. And this is when the guy goes to the police. Yes. Hence how we have a deposition now. <laughs> John wrote Gary a check for $2,500. He put it in an envelope and wrote the word ransom on it. When Gary came to pick it up, he opened it, screamed the word no, tore up the check in front of John, and took off into the nearby woods. And from this, I kind of felt like Gary honestly probably felt like John owed him this money. And I think the word ransom offended him. But John was like, I'm writing that on the envelope because that is what it is. So he never ended up cashing the check.
0: He probably thought he was going to get caught.
1: Maybe. After this incident, Gary left a few messages on John's phone. They were ramblings that didn't make much sense. John filed harassment charges against Gary. Gary would claim that his health was deteriorating. He said he was taking Ritalin for ADD and claimed to have muscular dystrophy, although I couldn't find any medical records to back this up, and he was in above-average physical shape when he was arrested. And he would later say that he had multiple sclerosis and blame some of his behavior on taking Ritalin. Hmm. Those are a lot of ailments that would not make hiking enjoyable. No, so that's where I'm not sure that he actually has those, but yeah. he claims that he does. John's wife, Jana, was also part of the deposition and said that Gary had been good at his job. He could communicate well on the phone. He was high energy, but spent his time as a loner. It was just Gary and his dog. After the fallout with his boss, Gary took to hiking in the forests, a favorite pastime of his, with his dog Dandy in his 2001 White Dodge Astro van. And yes, that is your typical kidnapper van. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> So picture in your mind, listeners, that white kidnapper van. That's what this looks like. So typical. Be original, Gary.
0: At least get a different color. Yeah. Don't use white. (laughs) There was
1: some reports that it was green, but in the evidence photos, it's white. Okay. I mentioned at the beginning of the case that Gary is suspected of murdering many other people than the four he is eventually charged with. But because he was never officially charged with those murders, I'm going to start with the ones that we know he murdered for certain. Just keep in mind that this is most likely not his first killings. So we're going to get into it now. Okay. Gary traveled to multiple states to commit his murders. On October 21st, 2007, Gary was at the Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. 80-year-old John Bryant was with his 84-year-old wife, Irene. No. Mm -hmm. They were avid hikers who lived in Horseshoe, North Carolina. They had decided that day to go on a hike. They lived extremely active lifestyles, and so their families did not worry about them jetting off to different trails for adventure. It was very common for them. Which is like life goals 80 and 84 years old. Mm-hmm. It sounds so sweet. It really is.
0: I hope when I'm 80 I'm still hiking with my husband.
1: Yeah. The couple parked their maroon-colored Ford Escape at the trailhead on Yellow Gap Road near Route 276, excited to start their hike having no idea the evil that awaited them just a few steps ahead. The Bryants never made it back to their vehicle. Due to their active lifestyle, it took two weeks for their family to report them missing. It wasn't unusual to not hear from them for a few days, as they were often off doing their own thing. The Henderson County Sheriff's Office started to search for the Bryants. Volunteers joined in to help officers and cadaver dogs to locate the couple. Helicopters were also used in the search. They don't know if they just got lost, Did they get confused. Mm -hmm. They don't know that it's foul play. Police discovered that Irene had placed a 911 call at 4 o'clock p.m. on the day they went missing. Unfortunately, because cell signals can be poor in forest areas, the call was dropped and never went through. (sighs) No. And I thought, how terrifying
0: for her. She was trying to call for help. And she didn't get a signal strong enough. Could you imagine how much hope you would feel like, I got a chance to dial 911 and the call starts to go through and then it gets dropped. Yeah. Oh. Which that totally happens in the forest areas. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So terrifying. Weeks after they went missing on November 10th, 2007, the body of Irene Bryant was discovered by the search party on the Barnett Branch Trail, not too far from where their vehicle was parked. Her body had been covered in leaves. She was positively ID'd three days after being found. She had been bludgeoned to death with a blunt object. Police now knew they were dealing with a homicide and not some type of accident.
0: And so being so close to their vehicle, I wonder, was he waiting in the parking lot, waiting for them to leave? Yeah, he was close to the parking lot waiting Mm -hmm. to find a victim. He's lying in wait, waiting for people to show up.
1: Yeah, like a predator waiting for his prey. Because Irene was found in a national forest, the FBI was called to perform an investigation. They offered a $10,000 reward for any information that could lead to the arrest of the killer. Authorities discovered that the Bryant's bank card had been used at an ATM at 7.35 p.m. the same night they went missing in Ducktown, Tennessee, to withdraw $300. The ATM was around 120 kilometers, so like 75 miles, from where they found Irene. When they looked at the surveillance footage of that ATM, they discovered that the person who had used their bank card was an older white male wearing a yellow rain jacket. The hood of the jacket was blocking the man's face. The police didn't know it yet, but this dirtbag in the video was Gary Hilton. Gary would later admit that robbing people was one of the many motivating factors for why he killed. He would attack people, steal their bank cards, get their pin numbers from them, take out whatever money he could, and then kill them. In the case of the Bryants, Gary killed Irene almost immediately, and then kidnapped her husband John to use their bank card. After stealing their money, he killed John and carried on his way. John Bryant was still considered missing until he was found months later, on February 3rd, 2008. A hunter in the Nantahala National Forest discovered a skull and called the police. Police found a spine and pelvis just over 18 meters or 20 yards away. The bones were examined by the Chapel Hill Medical Examiner. Two days later, the remains were identified as belonging to John Bryant. John's cause of death was a gunshot to the head with a 22 magnum. John and Irene had been married for 55 years. It's such a sad way to end together. And that would have been so terrifying for John to watch his wife get bludgeoned to death. And then he was basically kidnapped by Gary until Mm -hmm. he got his
0: money. It'd be a good way to convince John to give up his bank card number.
1: Oh, absolutely. Just after 55 years of marriage and making it to your 80s, then that's how you go.
0: Mm -hmm. It's just so sad. You do all that work of keeping physically fit and being able to go out and hike when you're 80, and then this happens to you? Yeah, you get taken out by a dirtbag? Yeah.
1: Gary decided to leave North Carolina and head back to Georgia. Four days after killing the Bryants on October 26, 2007, Gary stopped to camp on a private hunting preserve in Cherokee County. Someone called the police to report his trespassing. An officer came and spoke to Gary. Gary promised to pack up and leave right away. The officer ran Gary's license in their database and didn't find anything suspicious, so he let Gary go with a warning. It wasn't customary at the time to run an ID through the federal database, so the officer didn't. If he had, he would have found that Gary had an outstanding warrant for his arrest for an unanswered citation in 2005. Gary would have likely been arrested and the lives of his next two victims would have been
0: spared. So have the FBI at this time, have they made the connection between Gary and those two dead hikers? Because if he had an outstanding warrant, they would have had his fingerprints on file.
1: No, they have not made the connection yet. Okay. But he did have a warrant out for his arrest. So he would have been arrested on the spot and not been able to carry on to kill these
0: two people. Right. It's too bad it didn't work out that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't customary, and so we can't blame the police for it. It's just one of those, oh, he almost could have been caught moments. And I don't know if this close call spooked Gary a little bit, but he decided to drive right through Georgia and make his way to Florida. Gary set up camp in the Appalachicola National Forest, which is outside of Tallahassee. Gary was confronted by a park service officer on November 17, 2007, about the length of his stay in the park. Gary was given a warning to not exceed the 14-day camping limit. His license was not cross-referenced with the federal database, so again, Gary remained a free man.
0: That is just too bad.
1: It is, and this park would be where Gary would find his next victim. Oh no. So he actually was talked to by one of the service officers there and let go.
0: I wonder if that service officer talked to him because he had suspicions about him, or just had that, you know, feeling that this guy wasn't quite right.
1: Yep, his dirtbag radar was going off and like, I'm going to go talk to this guy and see what's up. And use the excuse of just so you know, you can only stay here for 14 days. And he's like, yep, yeah, I'll be out before then. Cheryl Dunlap was a 46-year-old nurse. She was a mother and a devoted Christian. On December 1st, 2007, Cheryl had made plans to meet up with a friend for dinner later that evening. It was a Saturday and so Cheryl decided to grab a book and go relax at Leon Sinks in the forest area. She was spotted reading by eyewitnesses at
0: 1.30 p.m. That does sound like completely relaxing.
1: Just what a nice day. It's a Saturday. I'm going to go read in the forest. I've got plans to meet one of my friends for dinner that night. Her children were older, so they had already moved out. She had the house to herself. Just living her best life that day, too. Sadly, Cheryl never made it to dinner that night with her friend and didn't show up the next day at church to teach her Sunday school class. A friend from church went to go and check on her after church was finished, and saw that Cheryl's dog was at the house, but her car was gone. The friend decided to report her missing, because this was just unusual for her. Yeah, to leave the dog behind? Mm Mm-hmm. Police were able to locate her abandoned car on December 3rd, but there was no sign of Cheryl. Upon inspecting the vehicle, police discovered that the sides of her tires had been deliberately punctured, with what was later discovered to be a bayonet, which is like a sword-like knife.
0: Yeah, so he trapped her there?
1: Yeah, so she was already parked there, and then he flattens her tires. Her purse was in the car, but no money was left inside of it. And honestly, this is every woman's nightmare to be in a secluded area and have some creep spy on you and then slash your tires so you can't get away. And I assume he likely offered to help her, and she came face to face with
0: a serial killer. Yeah, that's not even like, oh, coming up to your car and be like, oh crap, I got a flat tire. It would be very obvious that somebody had done it deliberately. So the terror would go up immediately. For sure.
1: And it didn't say how many. It just said her tires. So I'm
0: assuming probably all four were slashed. More than one. Yeah. Because I don't think I would panic if I came back and I had a flat tire, right? Oh, I ran over a nail. I did something. But more than one tire? That would be freaky. And you're a single woman. You're by yourself. You just
1: wanted to read in the forest and enjoy your day.
0: But can you not just feel the terror that she would have felt as she like looks around, like trying to figure out what's happening? Yeah. And then in enters
1: Gary on the scene.
0: Out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. No, you would have been totally suspicious of anybody approaching
1: you. Oh, yeah. Your stomach would drop, like, gun and instinct as soon as he came out of the woods. Yeah. I can't even imagine the terror. So a giant search party was formed to try and find Cheryl. As part of the investigation, police looked into Cheryl's banking activity. They discovered that a slim man in a terrifying white mask had withdrawn money from her bank account at ATMs in Tallahassee on December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, the three days following her disappearance. A total of $700 was taken from her account. Gary had made five attempts in total. He got money three of the times, and her card was declined twice for exceeding the daily limit on the other attempts.
0: Oh, man. So that's why he kept going for the multiple days. Yep. Are they at different locations so they can kind of track where he's heading?
1: These ones were all in Tallahassee.
0: Oh, he was in
1: the same area.
0: So he's not even feeling overly concerned about getting caught if he's staying in the same area.
1: Yeah, that would definitely be an
0: indication that he's not
1: feeling panicked.
0: Which again would lead you to believe that this is not his first murder.
1: And he's keeping Cheryl alive during this time till he gets all the money that he can out of her bank account.
0: Dirtbag. He probably promised them after we get enough money, I'm going to let you go.
1: 100%. I believe he does. Oh. And that white mask that he wears is so
0: terrifying. Is it like the scream mask?
1: It kind of reminds me of like the Michael Myers mask in Halloween.
0: Oh, that one is terrifying.
1: It really is. Super creepy. Just over two weeks after Cheryl went missing, on December 15th, her body was found by a hunter. One account said that buzzards flying above alerted him of her remains. When the hunter got closer, he saw that it was the body of a human woman. Her body had been covered with brush from the forest. She had large wounds on her torso and legs and Gary had removed both of her hands and head from her body.
0: What? Mm -hmm. For identification?
1: Yeah. The medical examiner used DNA testing using tissue from her thigh to identify the body as Cheryl Dunlap's. The cause of death was undetermined but noted as a violent one. The examiner was able to determine that her hands and head were removed post-mortem. He also noted that she had a large pre-mortem bruise on the middle to lower back that was not consistent with a fall, so likely sustained at the hands of Gary. Mm -hmm. Her body was said to have been in the forest for 7 to 15 days. Her death was estimated to have occurred anywhere between December 5th to 8th. Again, Gary had kidnapped Cheryl, forced her to give him her PIN number to her bank card, kept her alive for days while he stole money from her, and then viciously murdered and mutilated her body. And we find out later that Gary is a rapist as well. And so we don't know if he had raped Cheryl or not. That's a disturbing thought. Approximately a month after her murder, on January 9th, 2008, two hands and a head were found about 11 kilometers or seven miles from where Cheryl's body was found. They were found badly damaged in a fire pit at the Joe Thomas campground. The burn damage was too great to recover DNA evidence but the head and hands were
0: believed to be Cheryl's. I don't want to say hopefully, but at the same time, that means that nobody else is missing their head and their hands. Oh,
1: hopefully they were hers. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't belong to somebody else because we already know hers were removed. Mm -hmm. And with it being in such close proximity, I think he just took it with him, went to another campground and then burned them. Multiple locals reported seeing a strange looking homeless man hanging around with his dog and driving an Astro van. Some of them had even spoken to him. One woman reported talking to Gary on December 18th. He told this woman that she looked like Cheryl and that it was, quote, too bad about that girl getting murdered.
0: So he liked to engage other people to talk about his murders? Well, he had in this instance.
1: And that has happened other times in cases that we've talked about. And it's just so... To me, it almost feels like a slap in the face, like that they're getting off talking about this murder to somebody else. And for him to say to her like, oh, you look like that girl that got murdered.
0: I wonder if he was considering maybe she'll be my next victim. Maybe. And the rate at which he's killing people leads me to believe that, again, these are not his first murders. Mm -mm. There's no really cooling down time in between.
1: No, I think he's well seasoned at this point. Mm -hmm. Gary knew he needed to get out of Florida. And so he headed back to Georgia. Georgia. The state of Georgia would be where he kills his final victim. Gary later spoke about this murder to get a plea deal. So we have more details about what happened concerning her heinous death. From his perspective. From his perspective, Mm -hmm. yes. So I am just going to put a little warning that this one is much more detailed and brutal in nature, especially coming from the mouth of a cold-blooded killer. I don't doubt that any of these things that he said
0: actually occurred. And it doesn't seem like he's going after the sensationalism of it, that he's telling all of his details about all of his murders to everybody.
1: No, not at all. Mm -hmm. He's only telling to get this plea deal, which we'll talk about after. Gary made his way to Blood Mountain. Oh. I know. Why is it got to be called Blood Mountain? He arrived at the Herbert Reese Trail a couple of days before he chose his victim. He slept in his vehicle but had to be discreet about it since there was no camping allowed in the parking lot. Gary admitted to seeing his next victim on January 1st, 2008 on the hiking trail at the intersection of the Herbert Reese Trail and the AT, which is the Appalachian Trail. His unsuspecting prey was the beautiful and vibrant 24-year-old Meredith Hope Emerson. She was an avid hiker and often went on hikes alone with her dog. I read in one account that she was training her dog Ella to be a service dog. Gary used their commonality of both owning dogs to strike up a conversation. And I wrote, women beware because this is a tactic. Just because someone comes up to you, you don't have to engage. Gary was looking for a reason to approach Meredith. I have a daughter around this age and I've always tried to teach my children to be kind. But if something feels off, you don't have to be nice.
0: But I'm just going to say that if somebody else approached me with their dog and I had my dog with me, I would totally not have alarm bells ringing.
1: And he uses this. He knows that, right? So this is his tactic. Is that why he takes his dog hiking with him? Maybe. Oh. And so I just wrote in here, be kind, but you don't always have to be nice.
0: Be kind, but beware.
1: Exactly. And I remember watching a documentary where killers talked about how they chose their victims and they often will choose a woman who is nice to them. And no, I'm not putting any blame on Meredith at all. Just the more we know, the more we can protect ourselves. And I've said this before, this example that if the elevator door opens and there's a man standing there and you feel uncomfortable or anybody's standing there and you feel uncomfortable, you're allowed to skip it and take the next one. You don't have to worry about hurting that man's or that person's feelings. If it's a false alarm and they're a stand-up person, they won't be offended. Only the dirtbags will be. Mm-hmm. So just listen to your gut. And we can't say how she was feeling. She might not have been worried at all about it. It just makes me angry that he used his dog and her dog as the way to kind of break the ice and go approach her. Meredith had stopped to eat some trail mix and give her dog some water. Gary approached her and asked her if her dog was male or female. He said he didn't let his dog interact with other male dogs. Which sounds like it might have been true. Yeah, I think so. Because he had those altercations in the dog park. Mm Mm-hmm. When Meredith got up to continue hiking to the summit, Gary got up and hiked just behind her. It wasn't wide enough for them to hike side by side. Gary was 61 at this time and so maybe this gave Meredith also some comfort or false security.
0: Definitely not suspicions. No.
1: And I know for myself, I wouldn't usually get weirded out by more elderly men talking to me, say at the gym or other places. In fact, one of my good gym buddies was in his 80s because you're just not suspecting them to be a
0: predator. No. And like, I wonder if she even just walked a little bit closer to him because sometimes when that situation occurs with me, I'm like, okay, I should just walk a little bit closer just to watch out for them.
1: Right. Gary said he had a hard time keeping up with her because of his illnesses. So he fell back and she continued on. The popular trail was busy and eyewitnesses later described the situation as seeing an older man following a younger girl up the mountain. And I think, why didn't anyone say anything
0: or hike with her? Well, I'm sure it didn't appear like she needed any help or that somebody needed to hike with her.
1: That's true. Yeah, I can see that. Because these dirtbags are like wolves in sheep clothing. He doesn't look like the boogeyman. No. Right? He looks like just this 61-year-old man out with his dog going for a hike. Gary mentioned that he saw that Meredith only had a fanny pack. He knew she was not equipped to be on the mountain for an extended period of time. He then bragged about how he was one of the only people who were always fully prepared. His pack weighed 20 pounds.
0: His murder kit?
1: Yeah. Gary said he picked Meredith because she was female and he felt like he could overpower her. He said his sole purpose was to get her credit cards and make her give him her PIN numbers so he could rob her.
0: But his first ones were a couple. But they were
1: elderly. Mm. They were in their 80s. And he is suspected of murdering other men, but he said he usually
0: would target women. He felt that women made the easier target.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. He felt like he was stronger and could overpower them. Gary waited until Meredith came back down the mountain. He said he had chosen her if no one better came along before she had to cross his path. Oh, that's harsh. Right? He's like, I'll pick her unless someone more vulnerable looking comes by. And then I'll go after them. Because he knew it was a trail where it's one way up, one way down. So he Mm -hmm. knew eventually she had to cross his path. So that's why he didn't mind letting her go and finish her hike. Yeah. When she came back down the trail, Gary attacked and told her to give him her bank cards and pin numbers. He had his bayonet knife to try and threaten her. What Gary didn't know at the time was that Meredith practiced martial arts and wasn't about to go down without a fight. Good for her. Mm -hmm. She is such a fighter. She managed to grab the knife, cutting the webbing between her thumb and finger. Gary pulled out his baton, but Meredith was also able to grab that weapon. She didn't get the weapons away from Gary but was hanging on to them so he didn't have control over them. This surprised Gary as he thought this young thin woman would be easy to overpower. As the two struggled they slipped off the trail and tumbled down a slope landing onto a switchback. Gary had dropped both weapons in the fall. He said he then had to
0: hand fight her. Oh no. Yeah what a piece of garbage he is. But he's trained in combat. He's been in the army. Mm -hmm. I guess she's trained in a little bit of combat, but probably not Not the extent as he is. No,
1: but she holds her own. He said he thinks he fractured his hand during the fight. That's how hard they were fighting. Oh, wow. Well, when you're fighting for your life, that's not hard to believe. Absolutely. You fight no matter what. Meredith would sometimes stop struggling, and Gary would think he'd gotten control of her, and then she would start fighting again. This human piece of garbage, Gary, said that he had to keep punching her in the face and head He said she wouldn't stop fighting and almost won. There was a one point where he was like, she was kicking my butt. It's
0: too bad she didn't finish the job. So
1: sad and how terrifying for her, literally having to fight physically for her life. When Gary looked at Meredith later, she had two black eyes and a broken nose from his handiwork. Gary said she wouldn't stop screaming and so he knew he had to both control and silence her. Gary was finally able to get Meredith to calm down. He yelled at her that all he wanted was her credit card and pin. He made her start walking down a side trail that was closed at the end. She suddenly resumed fighting. They tumbled off the trail again, and he had to continue punching her. I just can't imagine what she felt at that time. When he regained control of her, he walked her to an area that was far from the trail, where no one would see them. He then used black zip ties to bind her hands together around a tree. Gary ran back in an attempt to clean the crime scene. He knew he had dropped his weapons and that Meredith had dropped items like her water bottle and dog treats when he initially attacked her.
0: To his surprise, her items had already been picked up by hikers. Oh, no. And where they fought, you'd think that there would be blood evidence from both of them if she fought so viciously. Could have been, but they fell off
1: the trail pretty quickly. So I don't know.
0: There could have been blood
1: there. But it was good that these hikers had picked up this stuff because this is the first notification to the police that there was foul play. Mm -hmm. And she's still alive at this time. Right. And so there was three hikers, to be exact, who found her things. And Gary watched them walk away with these items.
0: Oh, I bet you he was panicking.
1: He was just only like seconds too late. Like they had just walked away probably talking about it and like carrying all this stuff because there was more than just the dog treats in the water bottle. Mm-hmm. But I just thought so creepy. Like they did not know that this serial killer was watching them walk away. And he wasn't able to find his weapons. He didn't have a
0: lot of time to look either. Yeah. It sounds like it was a well-frequented trail if there were so many people on it. Mm-hmm. It was a popular trail.
1: Gary went back to Meredith and cut her free from the tree. He then used a nylon cord and looped it around her neck with a slip knot. He lied and said he had a pistol and told her to start walking to the parking lot. At this point, Gary said Meredith was compliant. When they got into proximity of the parking lot, Gary tied Meredith to another tree by the neck. He told her he was going to go get her purse from the car. She told him her purse was under the driver's seat in the car. Gary said she told him the wrong seat. It was actually under the passenger seat. And we'll see throughout this that Meredith leads him astray over and over trying to buy time. Gary said when he got back to Meredith, the sun was going down, and anyone who's been in the mountains after dark knows that it starts to get cold fast. Surprisingly, Gary gave Meredith a fleece sweater and an emergency blanket to wrap up in to keep warm. He went back to the parking lot and moved his van next to her car. He then went back and fetched Meredith and made her get into his van. And I think he moved his car so that her car was there to block any onlookers. Hmm. Gary had chains and padlocks already attached to the back of the front seats.
0: No way. Yes. Okay. He has totally killed more people than just these ones.
1: I believe so. He told police it was because he used those chains to secure cargo and stuff like generators and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. from rolling around in his van.
0: To the back of your seat.
1: Yeah. There was two chains. One was a few feet longer than the other.
0: Suspicious.
1: Yep. And he had padlocks there as well. My reaction is same as yours. I thought there's no way he didn't use these on other victims. Gary used the chains to secure Meredith to the back of the front seats and put the child safety lock on the back doors so she couldn't escape. Gary put Meredith's dog inside her car and then drove away. Meredith kept voicing concern for her dog. So Gary went back and got her dog for her. He actually turned around and was like, okay, because he could relate. He loves his dogs. But isn't that so bizarre? Like he's doing some kind things for her like giving her the sweater and the
0: blankets and then going back to get her dog. Or was it because he was annoyed that she wouldn't shut up about it? I think he could relate to the love of the dog. It just seems like such an oxymoron that he's being kind to her and he's planning to kill her.
1: Yeah, my brain doesn't put the two together that he can have compassion for her and also know he's going to kill her. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It's bizarre. Gary then drove to the Appalachian bank and tried to use Meredith's cards. This time he used a towel to try and conceal his face. Meredith kept giving Gary the wrong pin numbers to the cards in hopes of buying herself more time. There was like three different cards and so she would give him the wrong ones. She said maybe they weren't working because they weren't at a major bank. So Gary drove to Gainesville, a larger city area, to try the cards. He parked a little over 90 meters or 100 yards away from the bank and again the cards wouldn't work. But Meredith kept convincing him to try again. He said she convinced him each time that it would work if he tried again. She must have been hoping someone would notice what was happening if they saw him making the trek back and forth to the van four or five times.
0: And nobody does? Nobody
1: does. Nobody reports anything if they do. Oh, that's unfortunate. And all the while, he's holding a blanket over his head. Like while he's traveling back and forth? Yeah, because he doesn't want to be seen on camera. So in the other stop, he had a towel and now Mm. he has a blanket over his head. How did nobody pick this up? I don't know. And he's walking 90 meters, 100 yards back and forth to the van because he didn't want to park right by the ATM and nobody noticed. Hmm. And she got him to do this so many times. And I was thinking she was so smart. She did everything right. Because by doing that, she was hoping someone might intervene. I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, she ran me back. I'd come. I'd go like an idiot. And yeah, you are an idiot.
0: Must have made him furious. Yeah.
1: It got too late and Gary decided he had to leave the area. Meredith had a headache and so he gave her aspirin and checked to make sure she was all right otherwise. What? Like he was asking her all these signs of a concussion.
0: This is bizarre. I know. Here, You're- let me doctor you up before I murder you. Yeah. So was he planning on killing her at this point? Did he pick up other people and let them go after they gave him their money? No. no. Oh.
1: And he does talk about it later. He has no intention of letting her go. Hmm. Gary drove away and it started to snow. At one point, Gary passed a sheriff deputy car that was pulled over helping another car. Gary turned around and went in a different direction, looking for somewhere to camp, and eventually
0: found a spot. Isn't that suspicious when you turn around after Mm -hmm. you see a cop car? Yeah,
1: he said it was right at the base of this big hill, and there was already like about two inches of snow coming down. It was getting slippery. So he thought if he tried to go up the hill, he might get stuck like this car had. Oh. And that's why the officer was there to help him. So mm-hmm. he was actually quite smart. He's like, I'm not going to go up that hill. If this car couldn't make it up, I'm not going to take my chances. Yep. So he turned around and went in a different direction.
0: Yeah. And those vans, they never have good traction. They're no. not four by fours.
1: Mm-mm. And I thought to myself too, poor Meredith. She would have probably seen the flashing lights of the deputy car.
0: Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah.
1: Just so many times so close to help and just not getting it. Gary said he gave her the warmer sleeping bag, but secured her by her ankles so she couldn't escape while they slept.
0: Wasn't he worried about how the chains would chafe her feet
1: for her comfort level? He actually switched to the nylon cord and he said he put like seven or eight knots in it. So it would take her a long time to undo it. And if she was trying to untie it, it wasn't going to be a simple little knot and he would wake up before she could get
0: out. He switched to the nylon cord so she would be more comfortable. Yeah. So she could sleep. This is so bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. Me too. It's almost like a Dr. Jekyll and Hyde yeah. situation. Which, going along with schizophrenia, may very well be this situation. It could. Oh, I'm that... getting Switch vibes. I know. That crossed my mind
1: as well. He also said he gave the dogs a sleeping bag to sleep in as well because it was cold. He said it got down to about minus 9 degrees Celsius, which is like 15 degrees Fahrenheit,
0: which is chilly. Mm-hmm. He was letting the dogs hang out together? He gave them each their
1: own bag. Oh, <laughs> yeah wouldn't even let them share. No he actually said he gave them each a bag. The next morning Gary took them to Canton to try the cards again. He first stopped at a gas station and called his friend Sean to see if he could borrow money for gas but she didn't answer. His money was dwindling Mm -hmm. so he only could put in like thirty dollars of gas. They get to a region's bank and again Gary tries the cards a couple of times to no avail. Gary gets back in the van and drives them to Dawson Forest. He holds Meredith hostage there for two days and two nights at Shoal Creek, making her go hiking with him. He kept telling her that he would shoot her if she tried to run. He also told her if they passed any fellow hikers and she started to make a fuss, he would shoot all of them. The only way he wouldn't was if it was the police because he knew he wouldn't win that gunfight. Meredith didn't know it, but the only gun Gary had on his possession was a BB gun. Because of the cold weather, they did not pass anyone during their hikes. And sometime during this time of camping out, Gary called his old boss, who he had tried to extort, and asked for his job back.
0: What? hmm And why even go hiking? You've got a hostage. Why go hiking? Why risk it? Why not just know. hold out in the van?
1: He might have been panicking a little bit. He tried all these attempts with the bank cards and couldn't get them to work. And so maybe he's like, I need a couple of days to regroup and figure out what I'm doing.
0: And hiking was a meditative thing for him.
1: Oh, for sure. Definitely would have been a therapeutic thing for him. He did that a lot.
0: Yeah.
1: Gary later, unfortunately, admitted to raping Meredith the first night that they camped. He said it only happened the once, but I don't know if we believe him. That's sad. He wouldn't admit to like the word rape, but he's like, we had sexual intercourse, but she didn't want to. So the officer's like, so you raped her? Well, no, she just didn't want to. He's like, yeah, that's rape. So he couldn't bring himself to like use that word.
0: Which again is very interesting. Like in that dichotomy of like, I don't want to hurt her, so I'm going to provide care for her, but knowing that you're going to kill her. Yeah. And
1: holding her hostage, but going hiking with her like you would a companion. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so you said originally that he had a psych eval done when he was a child, when he was in juvie, and it never showed anything at all? Not that I could find. I couldn't find any records of his time in that juvie. Hmm.
1: And I don't know if it was because there was no formal charges laid. Like there was not really a way for us to find that because that would be personal sealed information.
0: And it sounds like his personality changes largely happened after that.
1: Yes. The only thing that we do know for certain is he was diagnosed with schizophrenia while in the army. Right. The next day on January 4th, Gary told Meredith he was going to take her home. Gary told officers that Meredith was having a good time with him. He said it was an experience for her. What? Yeah, just so delusional.
0: Just a story to tell later on. Yep. Remember that time that guy kidnapped me and raped me and told me he was going to kill me? Yeah.
1: And I think his viewpoint was she had stopped fighting physically with him. So he's like, she must have been having a good time. And he said they talked. They talked
0: lots during this whole time. Yeah, she's trying to talk him out of murdering her. Yeah, for sure. And he's taking that as... Oh, look, she's being friendly. Yes. Oh, that's a convoluted way to think of a relationship. Yeah, it's just gross.
1: To make her believe his lie, he started gathering her things and putting them in a bag for her. No,
0: why would he do
1: this? Yeah, he's like packing up her stuff. She was like, can you make sure my cell phone's in there? And he's like, yep, and puts her phone in the bag with all of her stuff this guy is bizarre. At this point too she was wearing mostly his clothes because his clothes were warmer.
0: Yeah because she wasn't prepared and he was.
1: Yeah so all her stuff is going back in this bag.
0: Because his hand was still
1: injured he had Meredith help pack up the camping stuff when they noticed a large truck
0: illegally taking water out of Shoal Creek. He's not gonna be upset about somebody else doing something illegal?
1: No it's not that he gets upset about that but he has them then throw everything quickly into the van. He said if police came to investigate the truck, he didn't want to get noticed. So he sees this guy breaking the law by taking all this water out of the creek. And he's like, we need to get out of here now. So they quickly just throw everything in the truck, all disheveled. Shows Mm -hmm.
0: his intelligence. Yeah.
1: He drives the ways up and finds the spot where he would kill her. He told her to get out of the van so he could arrange the stuff that they just threw haphazardly into the back of the van. He sets an air mattress on the ground far away from the van for her to sit on. He chains her to the tree and gives her two sleeping bags to keep warm. He said he was staggering at this point because of his multiple sclerosis, so he went back to the van and made himself some coffee and had a snack, leaving her on the air mattress. He went back towards Meredith, and she told him she was afraid he wasn't coming back, so he joked about her being happy to see him. He handed her a book to read and then went behind her to pretend to unlock the chain she was secured with. Knowing she believed he was going to unchain her and take her home, Gary struck her in the head with an iron jack handle. She hollered out no and begged him to let her go. She put her arms up to defend herself, but Gary just kept striking her with the iron bar until she was dead.
0: So did he like pretending that she was his friend? I think so. And he didn't want her to see it coming. And even his method of killing changes every single time. Yeah, just however he
1: can. And he does say that she fell unconscious, but he kept beating her until he knew that she was gone.
0: Hmm. So a bit of overkill even. But you would think if he was planning on killing somebody that he would have taken another gun.
1: He did have his bayonet to begin with with her right. and he had his yes. baton. Those got lost in the fight. Right. He then proceeded to undress her. Her clothes were blood soaked and he was worried about the evidence they might have on them. Plus, most of what she was wearing were his clothing. He then poured bleach over her body to try and destroy any remaining evidence. He just wanted to make sure he got all the fibers off. Yeah. Next, he used a cheap kitchen serrated knife to remove her head.
0: What? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Gary later said that looking back on what he did, it didn't seem real. Gary placed her head in a white trash bag and collected all the items that were laying around and placed them in his van, leaving her body behind. He drove a half mile or so to discard her head and her bloody clothing. He took her head and placed it by a log and covered it in debris. He said he took it out of the bag so the elements would get to it.
0: So he wanted it to decompose faster.
1: Yes. Gary then went back to the gas station to try and call Sean for money. He was down to only $18. He hadn't gotten any money from Meredith like he had hoped.
0: Because she was too clever for him. Mm -hmm.
1: He also let her dog go free at the gas station. He later said he couldn't bring himself to hurt the dog and knew it would be taken care of if he left it at the station. The dog later wandered into a grocery store. She was microchipped, and so it was discovered that the dog was Meredith.
0: It's just bizarre.
1: It is. He can't bring himself to hurt a dog, but he's going to do this to another human.
0: But he forms attachments to dogs. Mm -hmm.
1: We have such conflicting information about him.
0: Well, it makes me wonder what type of schizophrenia he had. Yeah I couldn't find any information on that Hmm. but it
1: would be interesting to know because a lot of serial killers start off injuring animals. They've got no problem hurting an animal. Yep. This next part is pretty wild. While at the gas station a civilian spotted Gary throwing things in the dumpster and vacuuming out his van. Police had been looking for Gary because of all the eyewitness calls of seeing Gary around the area and with a young woman. This man at the Chevron gas station recognized Gary from his picture from the news and called 911. You can listen to this 911 call on YouTube and it gave me goosebumps because you can just feel all of the emotion coming through in what this man is saying. He describes exactly what Gary looks like and gives them a play-by-play of what he was doing. The man said that he knew for sure that it was the person of interest in a missing woman's case. He pled for the cops to hurry He's like, hurry up. He's almost done. You got to get here. Yeah. And he even offered to take Gary down. Because of this call, police were able to arrive on the scene right before Gary was about to pour a bottle of bleach in the back of the van to destroy evidence. So who knows how long Gary would have kept on killing if this man hadn't acted and called 911. But he just said he knew in his gut. He knew it was Gary.
0: Good job for being observant.
1: Yeah. Gary was arrested for kidnapping at first based on the evidence that they had so far which was her belongings on the trail and eyewitnesses, and he was sent to county jail. Police did not have a body yet. A massive search ensued, but to no avail, they couldn't find her body. Police were able to obtain bloody evidence that Gary threw into dumpsters and charged him with murder. In a plea deal, Gary agreed to take authorities to where he had left Meredith's body in exchange for for taking the death penalty off the table. Hmm. And that's how you
0: get such good information about it.
1: Yep. The account that I relayed to you of her murder, Gary gave to the police en route to the crime scenes. It was a little unnerving to read him telling officers about the cruel things he was doing, pause to tell them directions, and then continue as if he was just telling them a story about his weekend.
0: Yeah, that would sound so disturbing. It really was.
1: Early into the interview, Gary said about Meredith, quote, I'm going to tell you right now, there was never any plan to let her go. I knew if I let her go, I would be identified. I knew that she couldn't, couldn't be let go. I knew she was doomed.
0: So why be so kind to her? I know. I mean, it's good he was kind to her and
1: not torturing her the whole time, but it is so unusual. At the very end of the interview, one of the officers asked Gary if it was hard at all to take Meredith's life. He responded, quote, it was like an an out of body experience. It was surreal, of course it's surrealistic. Removing a head is just unreal, and you know you look back on it and you say that wasn't even real. I don't know what it was. I was just in a you might say an altered state i I just don't know it was hard. It was hard. it was hard i you gotta remember we had a spent several good days together, actually, okay, maybe he didn't kill so many then. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he had some kind of soft spot for her. Because she she was a fighter, maybe? She was a fighter. She was only 24 years old. She loved her dog. Mm -hmm. I don't know. He really has no reason to lie about his feelings about it at this point in time.
0: No. And it seems like he's being very honest about his feelings.
1: Yeah, he was very honest about all the things that he did and how he was feeling. And so... I kind of take him at his word for this, not to excuse or anything. I just don't get it because he's saying, I knew I was going to have to kill her. She saw my face. She was doomed. But yeah, it was hard because we had some nice days together. On April 8th, 2008, Gary pled guilty to the murder of Meredith Emerson. And on February 15th, 2010, was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 30 years in a
0: federal prison in Atlanta. So at this time, they don't have any idea about anybody else.
1: The other stuff is kind of becoming in the works now. Okay, It's kind of all happening together, but this is the first trial. However, this is not the end of the justice that Gary had coming. Because Gary had murdered in three different states, he would have to stand trial three separate times, once in each state. And prior to all of the trials actually starting, law enforcement officials from all three states, Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida, met to compare cases, which Hmm. I thought was really great. Yeah. In September of 2009, camping supplies were found in Florida that belonged to Gary, which were able to be used in Cheryl Dunlap's trial. Against his pleadings, Gary was sent to Florida to stand trial. In February of 2011, after the jury deliberated for four hours, Gary was found guilty of first-degree murder and kidnapping. He was sentenced to death
0: for killing Cheryl and was sent to Florida's
1: State Prison's death row.
0: Which is so fitting since he rolled over and gave them all the details to avoid the death sentence. Right. And then they just ship him off to the next state. I know. Genius. I laughed at that part. And I
1: thought, I wonder if they even spoke about that, like when they all met together.
0: They're like, okay, you charge him with this, get him to roll on this because we don't have enough evidence on this case. So you promise that he doesn't get the death penalty. And then we'll stick him with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just poetic justice, really. A few
1: years later in 2012, Gary stood trial for the murders of John and Irene Bryant. Gary really didn't want to be sentenced to death. So again, he made a plea deal. He pled guilty to get the death penalty off the table. He was sentenced to an additional life
0: term without the chance of parole. So why is he all concerned about the death penalty? Because he already has a death penalty. What's one more? They can only kill him once. Why is he so concerned about it?
1: He tries to appeal the death penalty. Mm. So he's just trying to make sure that he doesn't get it on the other ones And it's always so wild to me how I feel like you have no right to worry about the death penalty when you are going around taking other people's lives. That doesn't
0: seem right at all. I don't (laughs) think
1: they should have a say in it at all, but I am glad that he did do this plea deal so that they could find Meredith. It's just shocking to me when they're all scared to be put to death and they value their own life so much, but have no problem taking someone else's. Gary went all the way to the Supreme Court to try and appeal his death row penalty, but thankfully to no avail. He is currently still awaiting death in Florida while he's also serving his life sentences from North Carolina and Georgia. All in Florida. Yes, because that's where he's on death row. Mm -hmm. So they're keeping him there. He referred to his killings as hunting to the other inmates, which makes me go back to that movie, Mm -hmm. right, that he viewed it as hunting, and blamed his change of behavior on the Ritalin that he was taking. He never seemed to really show any real remorse for his terrible actions. What are the side effects of Bridalyn? I don't know. I'm sure it's not murder. No. Before I end, I will leave you with parts of a quote from Gary. He said, quote, I'm not all bad. I mean, you got to understand. I mean, I'm sure you can see. I mean, I'm an effing genius, man. I'm not a, I'm not all bad. I just, you know, lost my mind for a little bit. Lost a grip on myself, man. What can I tell you? FBI and everybody else is trying to scratch their head. Hey, guys, don't start doing this crap at 61 years old. It just don't happen, you know. I just, I got old and sick and couldn't make a living and just flat lost my effing mind for a while, man. I couldn't get
0: a grip on it. That is one of the most bizarre statements you have ever read. Didn't he just admit, like, nobody starts this at 61? He said the FBI is Mm saying nobody starts
1: this at 61. And he's just saying, I just lost my mind for a while. I got old and sick and couldn't make a living.
0: But he didn't quit his job because he was having difficulties with his health. He got fired from his job because he was trying to extort his boss. Right. But his
1: behavior had really changed just in that last year prior to that. Mm. But it's hard to say. And we may never know. Ritalin does cause mood changes, but... Oh, it does? Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it causes murder. No. <laughs> but you add that on top of if he did have other illnesses and he Inca- did have mental health issues... You know, there could have been a personality disorder in there with his schizophrenia. It's hard to say. And that is the totally disturbing story of a human being who could have made something of himself, but instead chose to become a wretched and disgusting serial killer, the repulsively foul dirtbag, Gary Michael Hilton.
0: A complete dirtbag that could have done way better things with his life. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many other people make a success of their life with so many less talents than it sounds like he had? For sure. And now I don't want to go hiking again, Christy. <laughs> and I know Melissa has a overnight hiking trip coming up. <laughs>
1: I do. So this one's just for you, friend. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this one you're not coming with us on. That's not fair. I know. <laughs> She's going to send me it with all the dirt bags.
1: No, I'm depending on you to be vigilant to make sure nothing happens. <laughs>
0: That's right. I will protect everybody.
1: Well, I think you will be fine in a group. Gary preyed on the vulnerable.
0: Yeah, don't go hiking alone. Who does that? A lot of people. Less scary. It could happen just anywhere and any time. Yeah, it just took
1: that split second of nobody's on the trail for that moment. I can attack her right now. Oh, total
0: dirtbag. Mm-hmm.
1: But I hope all of our listeners will be safe in all of their fun
0: summer adventures. Yes. Until next week. See ya. Bye.
1: Testing, testing.
0: I hope I'm awake enough to do this today.
1: (laughs) In one of their new apartments, there was a floor. There was a floor bolted to
0: the floor. I'm glad that there was a floor.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, bring us popcorn. but I don't know why that came into my brain. (laughs) John hired Gary to work at his construction cuppy. Cuppy? (laughs) Don't forget to take your construction cuppy with you. (laughs)
0: for that truck to pass, though. Okay. You're like, I hate trucks. <laughs> I'm so dumb. Oh, you just <laughs> need to read the next line? Yeah. We need more chocolate. We need more chocolate. We should have sent the kids to get us slurpees. I was listening to a podcast that I guess they do it over the phone. Mm. And one of them had fallen asleep on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and so she actually had to call her back the next day to finish the want some chips christy you might get the police at
1: your door if you do that <laughs> that,
0: that would have been, been funny. funny how bad is it that i've trained my body that you just eat to stay awake again i was listening to another podcast and they burped and they didn't even take it out truck <laughs> stupid truck <laughs> i hate trucks
1: <laughs> okay okay come oh, melissa right. gator gator <laughs> Gary later. Gator. <laughs> <laughs> My brain just meshed those
0: two words together. They can, only kill him twice. Or they can only kill him twice. They can only kill him twice. <laughs> Stupid trucks. Trucks. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pretty soon we are just going to be locked in our basements. Just recording because we're too scared to go out. <laughs>